I know what was sacrificed for me to be here. I understand what is being asked of me. And the only thing that's being asked of me is that I fulfill my purpose. And I'm just so lucky. I'm just, like, I'm so incredibly lucky and fortunate. Welcome to the Renew Venture Capital Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hubbard. I've been involved in impact and startups and funding startups and founding startups for decades. As you might know, I'm co-founder of a design studio called Pixel Recess with my partner, Paul Armstrong. Paul and I had been doing venture studio work for the past couple of years, and the time seemed right to launch a fund. And if we were going to do so, we wanted it to be a reflection of who we are and the kinds of things we want to see happen in the world. And so Renew Venture Capital and the Renew VC Impact Fund were born. We knew we'd need to be just part of the team. And so I'm thrilled and honored to report that after a year of exploration and discussions, we now have a more amazing team than I could have hoped for. We're 70% female, we're white, we're brown, we're black, we're immigrant. We know startups, we know funding, we know impact, we know product. And for the next few episodes, we're going to introduce the team to you. Today, we start with Natalia Bishop. Natalia lives in Louisville, Kentucky, and is key to the startup ecosystem there. As always, you can find out more at RenewVC.com. You can find me, Mark Hubbard, on LinkedIn or M-W-H-U-B-B-Y, M-W-Hubby on Twitter. So enjoy hearing her story. I could not be more thankful to be working alongside her. I'm Natalia Bishop. I'm a Colombian transplant to the United States of America, first generation immigrant here. Mom of two, I am the director of innovation and entrepreneurship at the University of Louisville. Also a serial entrepreneur and currently super excited to be taking a role as partner at Renew VC. So tell me some personal background. Where is here and how did you get here? So I am based out of Louisville, Kentucky. I've been here about 20 years now, which seems like a really long time. I originally came from Barranquilla, Colombia, came via my grandparents and my aunt to Louisville, Kentucky. It was the first city in the United States we moved to. And basically, I think the American dream, <laughs> at least my grandparents' American dream, um, very excited to have had the chance to, to change the course of our lives. Came to Louisville because they have a work to school program in which you work the graveyard shift and they pay for your college at the University of Louisville. And I did that. I put myself through college with my family as many teenage immigrant zoo, took care of our family with my brother, and then launched my first business about 13 or 14 years ago, and did a series of lifestyle businesses after working corporate for a little while, uh, and having a baby and getting married and doing all that fun stuff. And so <laughs> here we are in the other side of the table, hopefully writing some great checks for some amazing founders over the next couple of years. So tell me about your journey to becoming an entrepreneur. In general, first generation immigrant children are not yeah. probably encouraged to <laughs> go be entrepreneurial, right? You're supposed to be a lawyer or something. So t- yeah, tell me like, how you ended up doing do not, that. Yeah, the whole thing is do not waste this. Like your your ancestors have worked too hard for you to waste this opportunity. Which uh, gets converted that, to doctor or lawyer often, right? <laughs> something safe and, and understandable. <laughs> I think the, the funny thing is like to understand a little bit of my journey, you have to understand my ancestors in a way. So I come from like a long line of really entrepreneurial women, matriarchs, if you would, which you couldn't tell by interacting with me for two minutes. It's just a bunch of ladies taking care of business. And I think that while it wasn't necessarily encouraged for me to be an entrepreneur, I always was entrepreneurial minded. Like I had my first 
moment okay i'm gonna make my own money when i was like maybe 13 years old i've always enjoyed cooking and what's funny is like my great-grandmother was she left her hometown at the age of 13 and was cooking as they were making the roads in colombia at the age of 13 cooking for the cruise and i ended up opening my first business right around the same time cooking for because our uh, school cafeteria served like trash food so i was like oh i can cook really well i make some badass sandwiches and send them <laughs> sell them to the other girls at my school uh, i went to catholic school by the way and it was funny kids now the 20 something years later after we graduated i still get whatsapp messages and people be like oh i love your sandwiches and i'm like it's been like 20 something years so i had really good ltv i'm just gonna say that and yeah so that was my first time my, my first taste of it but i as you mentioned you come here and you have this mindset of what the path is so I followed that path I went to college I did the corporate gig and, and I was not planning on doing this this happened to me it evolved from a need of after I became a parent explaining how do you ask a human to be the best version of themselves and do and fulfill their dreams and do what they think is possible if you don't do it for yourself that's the question I'm asking my child hmm. and and I also didn't want to subscribe to daycare and stuff like that. It's culturally, I think, not necessarily vibing with our culture in Colombia. So I was like, what can I do to replace my income and still be with my kid and at the same time be creative? I've always been a very creative person. And that's how it, my first business came about. And after a couple of trial and errors, I ended up with a photography studio with multiple photographers in it. That evolved into a co-working space. That evolved into a tech platform for educating women and nonprofits in the process and all kinds of different stuff. It just snowballed from. So do you feel the presence of your ancestors, as you put it, yeah. with you in some way? How does it affect how you think about what you do and how you make decisions and how you travel through life. I don't know if this is the right word, but it's like gratefulness, right? Like you have this sort of measure of, I know I was sacrificed for me to be here and I'm going to get emotional about it for some reason, but I understand what is being asked for of me. And the only thing that's being asked of me is that I fulfill my purpose. And I'm just so lucky. I'm like, I'm so incredibly lucky and fortunate and that the timing of things is where it is that I am in the right places and that I have been able to be in a position to just take advantage of the opportunities that have presented themselves like I could not do any of these things it doesn't matter how hard you hustle or how good you are in Colombia like it's just not something that I could do so I understand that most of it is not my talent but what's been given to me and so Therefore, you really hesitate to waste it because it's not just for you. It's It comes uh, as part of what you're going to do for everyone else. I don't know. I don't think that a lot of people think through it that way. They may be fine with coming to some kind of recognition of gratitude, right, and the good yeah. stuff, but they don't necessarily marry it with a sense of responsibility. I think it's beaten into... <laughs> <laughs> into us when you're little with your chanclet. I don't know if you saw Encanto, but it's like, I think it, it, is, a, it is a way, it's a, it's a reminder yeah. of when sometimes, because it's hard, right? No matter yeah. how you slice it, like some things get hard and sometimes you're like, why am I even doing this? Where, oh, this and leaving and, and at some point you're just like, it, it's, it, you want to walk away from certain things. But when you think about, for me, and this is not just my ancestors, but the people right? The people that I interact with and, and the founders that I interact with. When you think about the disparities and the and that you have the opportunity to have someone else not be in the same shoes you wear, you're going to do that. Nine times out of 10, even if it's hard, you'll do it. So that's why. So talk to me a little bit about the balance between sort of superpower and 
systemic disadvantages. You're in a funny spot because some of the things you mentioned are superpowers and your superpowers for entrepreneurs and founders that approach to life, that approach to work, that approach to what you're doing, those give you a, a real advantage. And yet at the same time, you're a woman and you're Latin mm -hmm. and you're an immigrant on top of it. Mm -hmm. Talk about how that has affected the journey for you. I have almost like two sides of the coin because in one hand, I don't look at myself and see a Latinx woman first immigrant. I don't, yeah, I guess like the conscious part of me doesn't recognize that piece, right? I'm just, I'm a human like doing the thing. And I don't walk into a room with the, I like just try to be in the moment of what is and not what I perceived it to be. I just walk in and I do my best and then we'll see. But you also walk in there white eyes wide open, right? As a founder, you walk in there understanding that your odds are different and that's just it, right? Like it's just what is. It's, it's sometimes tough to swallow because it can feel personal and it is personalizing some occasions, but the reality is it is what is and we just have to change what is, <laughs> right? right? The container, we have to change the container. It isn't about the fish. It's like we're right. whole. And for me, I think what is difficult is the the exhaustion because you just have mm -hmm. to do it so much more or so much better or so much blah, 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 whatever you want to call that gap. And I think that is probably the hardest piece is you have to be undeniable. And that is hard to ask of anyone, I think. I don't necessarily know that I have a superpower in a way. I, I think I do have a superpower. I can hear really well. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but I think I do think I am somehow a little bit more in tune with other people's feelings. So I do have this ability to to listen and make people feel good. That in a way it's an advantage, and in other ways a disadvantage. But so it, we'll talk about that because so you're an empath like I am, <laughs> and so yes. there's advantages in that because you see mm -hmm. the matrix, mm -hmm. right, in a way that other mm -hmm. people don't. Um, Absolutely. The challenging part of it is that you're not a narcissist. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. therefore you also absorb the matrix mm -hmm. in a way mm -hmm. that other people don't. First of all, the difficulty of being an empath is, especially if you are, a, what is it? A, a two in the anagram is a, an empath and a service. You're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> and that's me. It's like an empath and a service. Damn it. <laughs> Yo, you better get that, that credit card ready because I'm therapy bills going. But I think that for me, it's as I'm getting older and I'm turning 38 this year, recognizing where my value is and as a person, as a human. And I think really looking in has been the most helpful of anything else because I know that I am worth it just by being, right? So even if I feel all these things or I feel for people, I cannot allow myself to feel the way of that failure of not being able to help everyone or not being able to do as much as I want to do for everyone, because it's impossible. That is an impossible standard. Just like really understanding yourself. And, and to do that, you have to do a lot of work, right? A lot of meditation, a lot of therapy, a lot of protecting your own personal space. And I think that's something we don't really necessarily talk about enough, especially not in Latinx culture, especially not in the female circles, you have to protect your mind share. And we talk about protecting spaces from other people and their energy, but we don't really talk about like consumption of what are you listening to? Mm. What are you, what are you watching on TV that makes you feel bad? And so I'm really good about that. 
Hmm. Um, what are you, what really are you doom scrolling? You all, I will doom scroll. I have a 30 minute window of doom scrolling <laughs> that I have selected for that. And I'm like, this is what I'm doing. And it makes me feel terrible, but it makes me feel good that I know that it makes me feel terrible. <laughs> sure. I guess it just really knowing what your capacity is and, and I'm okay with letting people down. I'm okay with that. E- I was 10 minutes late for the tool. And you said, what did you say? Shocking. Yeah, I think that's what I said. <laughs> it's just well, not what you, that you want to be right. But sometimes it's, this is just the way it, it is. It's what is versus what your expectations are. Yeah. So, so being part of a, an historically or systemically mm-hmm. excluded group, whatever it happens to be for any particular person, it's a strange dynamic because it is associated with, I mean, very specifically with who you are, with actual identity markers, which therefore would have to make it feel very personal. (laughs) Um, And yet also by definition, it is as impersonal as a thing can get. A a lot of it Mm -hmm. is unconscious. A lot of the systemic is people often not even realizing sort of what they've absorbed and what they're expressing and what they're a part of. And, And even to the extent that they do, it's just about sort of those identity markers and not you. Specifically, so it's also completely impersonal in a way. It's very yeah. sort of category based, and so I'm a six-four you know, white dude. Help me understand. Help people like me. Some people who maybe haven't experienced some yeah. of those circumstances. Help me understand what it's actually like to face some of that. This is a multi-layered thing. Like right? it's not like a single. It presents itself in a single way or anything like that. And and I'll speak to the startup space because it's what I know. I'm in middle America and I'm in, in Kentucky and um, in a really progressive city in Kentucky, but I'm still in Kentucky. And it's hard when you are not measured with the same stick as everybody else. Sometimes that can be really difficult. And it's, almost, it's not blatant. It's not something you can point out to and be like, okay, here's the disparity. You did this to this person, but I like found their stock. So I know exactly what you asked of this person. And then if you are going to ask me for a different marker, we were talking about this with the team the other day about a founder that just happened to be a VC that put something on Twitter asking, like, I, I send a doc send out and this guy made it two seconds into my deck so that I was a black founder and stopped scrolling and sent me a rejection email telling me I didn't have enough traction, but he never made it to the traction slide. And we do have traction. So those are the kinds of things that one experiences. And and you can't really point and say, hey, you're, this is why you're being this way. It's, it's white and the chicken lays it and you eat it fried. So it's an egg. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> you know, and then there are other things like uh, I remember one of the, the bigger things that I have done system building wise is I opened a entrepreneurial hub, uh, a co-working space here in Louisville. And I blatantly had someone that was a part of the ecosystem, like shake my hand, look me in the eye and, and tell me, hey, you're going to do all the work and I'm going to take all the credit. And as a, as a young female Latinx, I mean, maybe they could have said that to any white young man, but the reality of it's like, you have to think about those things and, and think, why would this person say that to me? Or when you're touring someone through a space that just got a multi-year partnership with a top five fortune company in six figures. And you say, hey, I'm the founder. And you just tour them and they look at you and they're like, but this is a franchise. And you're like, no, I am the founder. Well, so you designed it? No, I am the founder. So you'd have to like sit there and sort of really be assertive about the fact that this is your idea, that you could possibly come up with something like this because they cannot believe it. Hmm. That Those are the sort of difficult sort of conversations that are really icky and that put you at a disadvantage because if we are real, 
When you talk about investment in VC, it is about team, especially in early stage, particularly in early stage. And if you can't believe the team is able to accomplish something, then you're never going to fund them. And so if you inherently believe that only certain people can do certain things, whether or not that's intentional, most likely not intentional, but is that's all that's all you believe. Mm-hmm. And that's the type of thing that, that I think happens more often than not that prohibits people from, from really just betting. If I know every horse that wins is blue, why would I bet on a green horse? It doesn't make any sense. Because I've never seen a, a green horse win. Yeah. It's the same thing. So, and, it, and, that, and that, my friends, is a Kentucky analogy. <laughs> I'm betting on a horse. Blue. Yeah. Perfect. I've never <laughs> used that example in my life, but... <laughs> I get why you did. So talk to me for a second about the difference between or or how you think about the difference between inclusion and equity. I talk to tons of founders and tons of funders and you hear things out of venture capital firms, for instance, which are trying to be inclusive where they'll say anybody can apply. We don't discriminate at all. And whether that's employee based for them or whether it's deal flow based, we don't discriminate on where the person came from or what they look like or any of that. It's all about the best application, but it's, it doesn't deal with any systemic issue right? by definition. Mm-hmm. So how do you address the fact that there are some people in those categories who have all just as much or more potential than somebody else who didn't face the same obstacles they've faced, but they haven't yeah. been able to hop quite to the point that person has gotten to. And so something more needs to be done. You can't just open it to everybody. You have to... Yeah. do things you wouldn't do otherwise. Talk, talk about how you do that and how you do that related to to startups and funding. I'm not going to pretend I know what it's like to be a white person, but I I think that one of the things that I've observed in in some of my circles and my friends and people, my husband's wife, so we've talked about this quite at length, is that the idea that that you are racist or that you have racist tendencies or that you have racist beliefs or whatever you want to say feels so again, personal. So like, I am a bad person and I'm going to like Dalai Lama here, Dalai Lama. I don't know how you say it in English, but I remember having the opportunity to, to see him talk uh, a few years back here at the Young Center. And one of the things that he said that really stuck with me was this concept of no self. And if you can separate the self from the action, the being from what it's done. So it's not, I am suffering is there is suffering here and so then you can begin to address that suffering in a way that doesn't shame you and i think that is what we have to do a little bit as a society is okay yeah there is suffering here and and how do we address that and i think the difference between inclusion and equity saying hey there's suffering here i acknowledge that so all I'm going to do about that is say there's suffering here. I'm going to do whatever I can do to check the box. So that doesn't have to come from ill intent or laziness, but it's just like, hey, I see it. Like, cool, they're suffering. Right. And I think the equity piece is the empathy piece is the I see their suffering. I know there's something I can do. I see the experience you're having. And here are two things I could do to change that experience for you. There, there's so many different elements here. There's like the, an element of pride. Of, I'm not a female founder. I am a founder. And so, or I am not a black founder. It, the reality is that we do need, not all of us, but most of us are going to not always be in the right room at the right time because of systemic issues. So there are things in place that are prohibiting us from getting the funding we need. And what I think is happening right now is that awakening of a lot of people seeing this 
in the mainstream and then how it applies into the startup world. We know that innovation is where economic growth happens and wealth creation and whatever we model here is what's going to trickle down. And when you're creating solutions that are for people that have that live experience, by the people that have that live experience, then you're inherently putting better products out in the market and you're solving different pain points that don't just affect one single set of the population. I think we have a moral duty in a way to to really take a look at how we operate our funds, at how we select our companies, at the type of support that these founders are receiving. I've worked with founders from really early stage where it's just a napkin all the way to like people that are in their series B and, and about to exit. And I think what's interesting is no matter how far and how much money you've raised, there's always this like common theme of hustle and struggle. And so I think how we create systems that allow people to see themselves in that way to begin with, to then be bought in by the system and poured into, I think that's that's kind of part of what we have to build. So it seems that much of what Renew does tends to circle around that idea of empathy. Radical empathy is how you build the best products. It's how you build the best SaaS marketing platform is by radically mm-hmm. empathizing with your customers constantly. Talk about how it applies how you feel it applies to you as a VC, to how you approach venture capital investing, how you approach how you work with founders, how you approach evaluating deals. How does that empathy apply to the way that a venture capital firm should operate? Empathy is a double-edged sword, as we made reference to earlier. And so I do think that empathy with no operations, it won't lead to good returns. It will explode. And then at the end of the day, that's just going to do more harm. Because why? Because we're going to want to give everyone a check because we're like, oh, you're empathizing. If that's what BC becomes, and then there's, then we won't innovate. So I'm not suggesting that we should now EQ classes and and do therapy and then willy-nilly write checks. Right. But I think transparency is key within your team, within your stakeholders, your LPs, that allows you to say, this is why I'm making the decisions I'm making. We're clear on where our thesis is. We are clear about how we vocalize and put that thesis out there so that people can save time. Can And we know that in startup land, time is everything, right? And we are empathic from the first touch. And so we're building a a system that allows you to come and be who you are, regardless of your culture or your background, and and get the support that you need and get the introductions you need. And your your name is mentioned in the room while you're not there. We sort of forget that we're also building a product. Like VCs are also founders. At least at this stage, right? We're fundraising. We're building systems we are we have a team to create we have to do marketing we have to do all the things just as a founder it's the same exact thing and i don't think that founders really understand that process in the same way either if we have a system that's efficient and that is clear is kind and that it will i think result in a, a much better portfolio and in a much better satisfaction from our lps so if i have an idol. It's that I want to be, I want to be smart and I want to be capable. That's what I want. I want every, someone around me to always, at some point in our relationship, look at me and say, man, you're the smartest person I've ever met. And I'll, I'll, you know, demure 
and then inside, <laughs> my precious. But if I have a want, really, it's to be mm-hmm. empathic and kind. And being empathic has nothing to do with softness. You've known me now for a while. I'm not a particularly soft person um, <laughs> all the time, although I do cry watching stuff a lot. That's just because I'm old. Uh, when you're in anything that's essentially a marketplace, you have to be empathic and kind to everybody who's a part of that ecosystem. So yeah, it's, it's not yep. kind or empathic to L- LPs, to investors, to just distribute their cash and not get risk adjusted return, yeah. <laughs> returns on assets that right. it's not good for the system. It's not, it's not good for anybody, but that's also not kind for founders mm-hmm. who shouldn't be getting money, right. who don't need to waste that year of their life in that way without cracking something that, that the, not having the money quite yet would have helped them crack so that then they can get them right. Like whatever that is, that's not kind to them. Life will try to beat mm-hmm. you into mediocrity. And I mean, you really have to like war against it. And part of warring against it, you know, related to empathy and kindness is not being silly and not being soft mm-hmm. and finding that balance of trying to do what's best all the time based on f- feeling for the other party. I think what we've managed to do so far here is so interesting and so exciting and so different. It's, you aren't saying this is how I want to build this. And then you just build it, right? We are in a fluid state of this is how we're building this. We are listening to our customer and we are making adjustments to how we treat our customer, which inevitably makes your product better. What is what is the deal flow process? Could it be better? And so there's like, you and you don't have one person with a single point of view. And that's where the difference is. It's like, you don't have just a single point of view looking through that process, you have five or six people with different life experiences that have looked at that process and said, hey, but what about this? And then you didn't say, okay, well, you know, good ideas get funded, you said, (laughs) which also has been said to me. You instead, you say, okay, let's tweak for that. And so that's, I think, what's so lovely about what's happening here is that it's this collaborative process, is this collaborative just beautiful space of let's take a look at this and let's just continue to listen and tweak where it's possible so that it can be the best it can be. And then two years from now, when the the, the market changes, because it will, when we the drive it dries up a little bit and it's not as plentiful, then we'll may change the process again. But we're going to do that and we're going to be eyes wide open that we're going to continue to just tweak and tweak. The fund that Renew is raising and deploying right now has really two theses. The first one is that that we're coming into a generation of founders here who aren't willing to bifurcate their lives anymore. Like they, mm-hmm. they want to build big, successful, profitable companies that become global companies that that exit that all, all, the, all, all the things you hear about and think about in traditional sort of venture capital terms. They want to participate in all of that. They want it to be transformational for themselves, but they also wanted to be transformational for other stakeholders. They are committed to some kind of mission of this company doing good in the world that is more intentional and more webbed into their business model than has traditionally happened. That isn't just about corporate philanthropy. That isn't just about CSR. That isn't just about ESG even. That's about mm-hmm. having the business model do good in the world. So that's, and, and that some of those companies are going to be the best investment opportunities going forward are, are backing those founders. The other thesis is, that look, success in venture capital is essentially, especially when you look at the outliers, the biggest winners, it's essentially about identifying TAMs, total addressable markets that other people can't. And and so Uber and Airbnb, those were TAMs nobody could see, nobody had any viewpoint on, nobody thought they could exist. And so if you have a class of people, if you have women and historically excluded founders 
who traditionally have just been ignored largely, they probably have incredible ability to see all kinds of TAMs, all kinds of markets that other people can't see and address those markets. And by definition, therefore, there must be a ton of untapped opportunity in that market. Talk for just a second about why those things are important. Why is it important to help fund impact companies that are doing good in the world, but also growing big and performing? And why is it important to back women and historically excluded folks? I think the obvious answer is we want the world to get better. If you want more people to enjoy those products that haven't been made yet because to address their needs, because no one that looks like them has had the money to do so, then that's what we do. And when you're talking about the type of companies that that we're looking to fund being companies that have this mission woven so intrinsically in their business model that you can't separate the two. They are their mission. And there's no amount of changing CEOs or corporate strategy that's going to change that. So as they scale, that just gets better and better. But I think the other piece of this is the opportunity. We we don't necessarily talk enough about the opportunity. There's so much data and research out there about immigrant founders, like literally do, you know, because of the hardships and the things that you have to do to adapt to a new, to a new world <laughs> altogether and how that changes the makeup of your brain. Like we're not, we're talking physiology. You see things differently. You simply do. And how could there not be a TAM in there when you can literally see things and gaps in different way? We know when people travel, it doesn't matter what color you are or where you come from. When you travel and you come back to a place that your worldview changes, well, you can now see different TAMs, right? It's the same thing for women and people of color and everybody else. So to your point, the big opportunity is to take that first bet. And, and I think the big gap is that we haven't gotten quite to to a place where this is happening at scale. We're right before the wave hits. We're surfers and we're just, you know how you can feel <laughs> that wave coming. And I think that we're starting that first wave of founders, those first couple of waves of founders that are doing amazing things that are people of color and female and Latinx have gone through. And so a second wave of founders has seen themselves represented and has said, hey, you can do it, so can I. So now I'm going to go. But it's the third and the fourth wave that mm. are going to just be um, like, oh, my God. And so we have to really we have to really make a decision right now as funders to say, are we going to take the wave or are we not? I think that the market opportunities are going to continue. Think about this. The average age of a white person with, with spending money in America is like 42. But the average age is right now for Latinx is 28. Uh-huh. So the spending power and the cultural shift that is going to happen just here in the United States over the next five to 10 years, when we're just putting like this influx of people that are going to make a whole lot more money and are going to be younger and they're going to be spending. Who, who sets culture? Black women, right? They are the culture setting trendsetters of the entire world and they have more spending power than we want to acknowledge. And so... Why aren't we addressing those markets? I think the idea that 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 can be controlled is outdated. And I think that we know it and the LPs that recognize that and not just recognize it, but vibe with that are the ones that are going to make all the money. This is where the opportunity is. Yeah, there's not an, uh, you know venture capitalism or a startup ism that you can you know, dumb down 
and and it doesn't apply better to this market than, than any, if you want, I want founders who will you know run through walls to be successful. Who's going to do that more than a founder who is deeply committed to some kind of mission in the world that they want to see that isn't just becoming rich or a founder that has been told their whole life and directly or indirectly that they shouldn't have the shot that they're having or they shouldn't be able to accomplish what they're going to accomplish. Those are the people that are going to go make those things happen. And by the way, yes, all the data supports it and all the data says, you know, women, women investors do better than male investors and, and right. uh, women run companies tend to do better and, and uh, immigrant companies tend to do all of the data is there to back all that up, but it all makes sense. And yet nobody or very few have really tried to address it in a scaled way. And we are, and don't hear anything wrong. We'll fund a, white male founder who's founding an amazing impact company. That's the lens. Um, you're now becoming a venture capitalist. What would make you feel good about this effort a decade from now or when you're my age, what would make <laughs> you feel like you had, had done things well, or what would you like to see happen or come into the world through this kind of work? So I'm going to answer that with a non-answer. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> not exactly what you asked, but I had a weird experience with death uh, a few years back in 2018. For those of you listening out there, sorry, this was triggering. My brother-in-law who was 41 at the time and he had a massive heart attack and I ended up being there with him when he passed away and holding his hand and all of that. Because my sister couldn't deal with the shock, like the picture of Health 41. We had lunch with him that day. And one of the things that was interesting to me was he was the only one that didn't have dessert <laughs> and had worked out that morning. And then all of us like just sitting there eating and whatever he ends up you know having a heart attack and passing away and i'm not sure if you've ever been in a room when someone passes or dies when someone dies you think it's going to be like in the movies where the music rolls and the sky's barred and all this other stuff happens and the reality of it is that it is extremely uneventful it is it's like turning the lights off and i think for me that moment was a, a big awakening of you don't get to wait 10 years to have a moment of did this fulfill me or did I do good or whatever. It has to feel good along the way. It has to, it absolutely, 100% has to be the right thing with every step. And so for me, I, I obviously want our LPs to do well and, and, and have that piece of it. That's, I think, a given. Any fund's going to want to do that and, and successfully financially return to everyone involved. So I'm not even going to address that part. But I think that I want to see every single day that we're interacting with founders and LPs is, first of all, internally as a team, that we are able to learn from each other and see things in a different way from our founders perspective that they feel treated with every ounce of love and respect that they deserve and that they feel supported um, that they feel like they can come to us and get their questions answered and not feel like they're trying to impress us and so they make the wrong decision because they're trying to impress you, right? That they feel a level of comfort of, hey, I'm not sure how to do this. And if we don't know between our team, then we're going to find an LP that knows someone who knows someone, right? That we're going to be there for them, that we're informed and that we're kind. So for me, that's for the founders and for the LPs. And then honestly, I want to, I know that, and just looking at our deal flow right now, right? Some of the ridiculously amazing companies that we are just starting this process and some of the companies that are coming through. The impact 
the the change that some of the solutions can have in the world. It's almost scary how good it can be. <laughs> it's almost like when you're like, is this too good to be true? Because you're like, if this actually happens, if we do what we need to do and we stay true, there's some serious change coming and there's some serious cool stuff being built. That's to me probably top, that we can see that impact all the way through and that we are having fun while we do it.